Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to really dig deep into your word and to mine out uh, the deep truths which are here, which will make our faith strong, which will help us to persevere to the very end. And we pray for all these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Okay, uh, it'll be helpful today if you have a look at the outline. Okay, you might sort of say, wow, Andrew's trying this new thing. Okay, in the outline, uh, there are these uh, three words that you have to figure out, which are very difficult, but at least uh, it'll be helpful for you who like uh, Sudoku or something. Okay, anyway, um, I like watching uh, Discovery Channel, and actually recently at the Discovery Channel, there's this uh, program called Brain Games. Okay, Brain Games, uh, I'll recommend it to you. And it's all about how the brain works. And I remember one particular episode which I watched with my children, which was quite interesting. And it talked about how hard it is to choose the right ice cream. Okay, so if you go to your Hagen Dazs, you go to your New Zealand ice cream, you go to your Ben and Jerry's, you might ask yourself, why is it so hard to make the right choice? And actually what they found is, it's not enough that I buy my ice cream and I enjoy my ice cream. It's just as important to know that I didn't buy another ice cream which I could have enjoyed more. Okay, so the, the, the way the brain works is it's not good enough that I enjoy the ice cream I bought, but my brain wants to know is this the very best choice I could have made or is there another flavor which I could have bought which I would have preferred even more. So I don't know about you, but it's always the case with me when I go and buy ice cream with my wife that after a few licks of my ice cream, I always think that her ice cream is better than mine. Right? So that's the sort of thinking that uh, goes through in terms of choosing the ice cream. And I think that it's very common that we're dissatisfied with the choices that we make because we feel that it may not have been the optimal choice. It may be the jobs that we have, uh, the studies that we enrolled in, it may be the people that we go out with, it may be even the people that we marry. We, we doubt and we second-guess cho- sec- uh, uh, second ourselves in terms of the choices that we make. And I think that the great danger is that in our Christian life, we can do the very same thing. Uh, we can second-guess ourselves and doubt whether we made the optimal decision when we chose to become a Christian. I wonder whether that's the case for you, whether there are times in your life where you, you second-guess yourself and you ask yourself, did I really make the right decision to become a Christian? Well, I think that uh, in the book of Hebrews, as we've been seeing over the last few weeks, it was written to Jewish Christians. That's why the ancient title of the book was to the Hebrews. And I, and I think that the Jewish Christians were experiencing exactly that emotion. The emotion of doubt, the emotion of losing confidence in Jesus, of second-guessing themselves as to whether they would make the right decision. And part of that reason was because, I think as you look in the book of Hebrews, we'll see that, that they were facing very serious and intense and real persecution. Uh, a persecution that would have resulted in arrest, imprisonment, even the real possibility of dying. So if you look up here on uh, the slides, okay, okay, you'll see that um, in chapter 10 and 12 and 13, at various points there are hints in which the Christians as a whole, all around the ancient Middle Near East, were actually suffering uh, different sorts of persecution. So, the writer to the Hebrews writes, Remember in those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. 
Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. In chapter 12, verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Again, chapter 13, verse 23, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Okay, so they were facing a time of real and intense persecution, confiscation of property, arrest, threat of death, and it was causing them to doubt their faith. Now, a bit of background is helpful here, and we'll be touching on it as we keep going along uh, this passage. But if you look at the next slide, most uh, commentators uh, feel that the book of Hebrews was written around 60 AD. And we know in 60 AD, as we will reveal to you later, that actually it was a very strong period of persecution against Christians during this time. And the reason why uh, many commentators say that um, the book of Hebrews, as we're reading it today, was written around this time was because... If you look at later parts of the book of Hebrews, it talks about the sacrificial system as if it's still happening. So I haven't put it up here for you, but you can look it up in Hebrews chapter 10. It keeps talking over and over again about how the sacrifices are being offered year after year. It talks about how uh, these sacrifices are undertaken by the priests and done over and over again. And uh, why don't they stop? Right? Because it's ineffective. So if the temple... Okay, the next slide... If the temple which fell and was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD was still operating, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews would not be writing about sacrifices and the sacrificial system this way because the temple would have been destroyed, burned to the ground, the priests would no longer be performing these sacrifices. So it makes sense that the book of Hebrews was written around here. And so if you look at the, uh, look at the next slide, uh, this is very early Christian document uh, called 1 Clement, which was written between 70, sorry, 80 and 90 AD, which talks about the letter to the Hebrews. So therefore we know that it was written before this period. Okay, so 60 AD, keep that in your mind, was a time which not, was not a good time for Christians in terms of persecution. Okay, it was a very difficult time. And the situation as we read it today in the book of Hebrews is that they were facing doubts second-guessing themselves, losing confidence in Jesus. So what does the writer to the book of Hebrews say to these people who are having doubts and facing persecution? Well, in verse 5, he writes, It is not to angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him, you made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything made, sorry, we don't see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death everyone. Now, the word that keeps being repeated here, if you uh, would pay attention to the passage, is the word subjected to. Okay, this word keeps repeating, being repeated three times in the passage, in verse 5 and verse 8. It keeps coming up. And uh, the point that uh, the writer is making is that where, where will the future world be subjected to? Who will it be subjected to? Who will eternity be subjected to? Who will rule over the future world? 
And according to the psalm, which is quoted here in verse 6 to verse 8, uh, it says there that it is men and women who will subject the world to rule. They will rule over the world. But more specifically, it is not just general humanity that will rule over the world, but it is those men and women who belong to God, the Son of Man. Right? The idea of these are Hebrew people, God's people, who rule the world. And they will be crowned with glory and honor, and everything will be put under their feet. Now, the problem for these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians, was when they look around the world, they didn't see that they were rulers over the world. They didn't see that the world was subject to them. In fact, it was just the very opposite. Because they were being subject to by others. They were ruled by others. They were under the power of others. They were arrested, murdered, crucified and burned by others. So the question for them is, what happened to these promises that God had given us? That, you know, uh, for a little while we'll be lower than angels, but in the future we will rule the world. The world will be subject to us. Right? Is it all for nothing? Are God's promises not genuine? Well, I know that uh, for those of you who do the Bible study, this is a very difficult passage. But what happens is, the book of Hebrews actually looks to Jesus for the fulfillment of God's promises. In verse 9 and 10, it says that actually these promises of the Son of Man ruling the world in the future are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because Psalm chapter 8, which is quoted here, speaks first and foremost about Jesus who will be made lower than the angels and then later crowned with glory and honour and everything made subject to him. So look very carefully at verse 9 and 10. Okay, verse 9 and 10. Because verse 9 and 10, he says, Jesus fulfills this psalm. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should, be, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now, I hope that during Chinese New Year, you all have your fill of bakwa and, uh, and cake, right? Because you really need brain power to understand this passage. But let me uh, show it to you visually. I think it's more helpful visually. Okay, next slide. Okay, so basically, the, the Jewish Christians... Uh, were, were, were losing faith in, in Jesus. And what, part of the reason why they were losing faith was not just because of the persecution of the Romans, the Roman authorities, but even the general society was making fun of what they saw as a crucified go- king that they were following. Right? So this is a graffiti which was taken from the, the Roman, it's supposed to be written on the wall in some Roman place somewhere. It's a real thing, I didn't draw it myself. Okay? And basically what it says there is that uh, this guy, Alexamenos, is worshipping his God. And instead of Jesus Christ on the cross, they, they draw an ass or a donkey, right? To make fun of Jesus. And one of the reasons why Jewish Christians would, 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 would feel that loss of confidence in Jesus is because other people would say, why would you want to worship someone who suffered and died on the cross? Could such a person really be the king? Could such a person really be a saviour? How could, how could you follow a dead man who died on the cross? But actually what this passage says 
is that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels when he became a human, when he suffered in this world, and when he went to the cross and he was crucified for people. Right? So, the crucifixion of Jesus was not a reason to lose confidence in God, but it was actually a fulfillment of what God said in Psalm chapter 8. That Jesus Christ would be made lower than the angels in his humanity and suffering. But later on, through his resurrection and exaltation, he would receive glory and honor from God. Alright, so the next slide. Okay. So, Jesus, in his life, on the cross, he was made lower than the angels. Okay, yeah, I hope you can see that visually. Okay, next slide. But in this way, in his suffering, his crucifixion, in his uh, abuse and everything else, this was the way in which he actually went and received his glory and honor and everything was made subject to him. But the passage goes on even further than that, right? Because in verse 10, it actually says, that by Jesus doing this, he brings many sons and daughters to glory. I read very carefully verse 10. Jesus doesn't do this suffering for himself, but in suffering and his crucifixion, he actually brings many sons and daughters to glory. Okay, so next slide. Okay, so Jesus is the pioneer to glory. Right? It says there in verse 10, he's the pioneer of salvation, perfect through what he suffered. So in the unity that we share in Jesus, and the solidarity we share in Jesus, we are actually part of the people, the Son of Man, who will reign with Jesus with glory and honour, and the world made subject to us. Now that's why it's so important for us to see what Jesus has done here. See, so if you look in the outline, it says that he is the pioneer of our glory and salvation, isn't it? Now the word here, pioneer, in verse 10, is translated as, uh, in various other translations, as author. He's the author of our salvation. He's like the, the leader. And basically what this word means is that he is the person who is first. He is the person who leads others. He is the, the person who begins the sequence for others to follow. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He leads his I guess, many sons and daughters to glory to be rulers of the universe in the future. Now, that's why it's so important for Christians to understand that. Because without being united in Jesus Christ, we cannot actually be what God wants us to be. We cannot be the rulers in the future. We cannot receive our glory and honour. We cannot receive those crowns unless we are, we are part of Jesus Christ. See, again in verse 10, uh, that's what makes uh, Hebrew so difficult, right? You really have to read those verses again and again. He says in verse 10, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their faith perfect through what he suffered. Now, Jesus was always perfect. He was God before the creation of the world. So he was always perfect because that's part of being God. If you're God, you're perfect. But Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered because he became a perfect saviour. He became a perfect author, a perfect pioneer of our salvation and our glory. 
And I think that for the Jewish Christians to hear this, it was so important because they needed to know that, look, they may suffer now, others may be rulers over them, they may be subject to other people, but in the future, as long as they hold on to Jesus, as long as they are united with Jesus, as long as solidarity in Jesus, they will reign with Jesus Christ. Now, that's so important for not just those Jewish Christians, but for us to hear, isn't it? Because I remember this guy, a very famous theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, to be Christian is, to, is what makes us truly human. To be Christian is what makes us truly human. Because God has made us as humans to rule the world in the future. But we cannot be truly human in that way unless we are Christian, unless we are part of Christ. God is destined for us to be masters of the world, to rule everything, everything to be subject under us. And that is our destiny, but that only happens if we are in Jesus Christ. So we must always hold on to Jesus. We must never second-guess Jesus or doubt Jesus. In verse 11 onwards, the writer of the book of Hebrews goes on and he speaks to those Jewish Christians who have all these doubts. He says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I, the children God has given me. Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, in the previous section, it talks about the unity or the solidarity of Jesus in the work that he's done, right? He works through the cross, through his resurrection, to the exaltation, to bring people to glory. And we are to be united with him in this way. But in this section, it talks about the unity that Jesus has with us as his brothers and sisters in flesh and blood. Jesus is fully God, yes, okay, amen to that, but Jesus is fully flesh and blood. He is God 100%, but he is man, woman 100%. He is humanity 100%. That is the nature of Jesus Christ, his essence, fully God and fully human. And the reason why Jesus became like us is that by his death, it says in verse 14 and 15, right? He can conquer death for our sake. He is our liberator from the slavery to death. Because he was exactly like us. He died, but unlike us, he rose again from the dead. And if we follow Jesus, we can rise from the dead with Jesus as well. And that's why we must be united with him. Now the Bible tells us very clearly that we have always been under the sentence of slavery of death since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden right at the very beginning of the world. Okay, so in Genesis chapter 3, which is up here, God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust 
you will return. And it says here that the devil, or Satan, has power over mankind, not because he has power in himself over death, but because he gained power by seducing and being the agent by which sin comes into the world, and as a result, death comes by rebelling against God. So the picture of the devil here is that he's this evil tyrant, right, who doesn't have good intentions for mankind, but evil intentions. And he rules with this iron fist greater than Kim Il-jung or Pol Pot or Stalin because he has a very real power of death over each and every one of us. And that's a very real fear that we have of death, right? I mean, most people fear death, most normal people, right? unless you're like some skydiving person or whatever. But the very real reality for the Hebrew Christians is that death was staring them in the face. Okay, it's not like us. We, we may say, yeah, yeah, okay, there's dengue, I fear death, right? But for the Hebrew Christians, then there was real death. People in the congregation were dying, right? It's like we, we look out here, there may be people who are not here today because they're in prison and they're dead. That's what the situation was. So again, if you look at this um, timetable, is it timetable? No, it's not timetable. Historical timeline. Okay. Uh, we said before that the letter to the Hebrews was written around 60 AD. Now, now why was this such a bad time for Christians in, uh, in 60 AD? Well, okay, next slide. It's because uh, the, of this guy, right? He ruled from 54 AD to 68 AD. He was the emperor um, Nero. And uh, that's a that's a figure of him. That's why I think he really looks like when you're still alive. And he was notorious for persecuting Christians. Yeah, he was notorious for persecuting Christians. Uh, he would throw them to wild animals, put animal skins on them, let them be attacked by tigers and lions and bears. He would crucify them at the stake. He would tie them to the a stick and put tar on them and set them on fire, things like that. So for these Jewish Christians... Uh, they were really facing the real threat of death. And, and I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I've read history and I, I can see for myself, when you look at communist countries or you look at Cambodia during Pol Pot, when people are faced with death, they would be willing to do almost anything to escape death. They would betray their parents, betray their sisters, betray their brothers, betray their children. They would murder and kill other people so that they themselves don't die. Well, how much more would these Jewish Christians uh, face the temptation to give up on Jesus? But the writer to the Hebrews says they are free from the slavery of the fear of death. They no longer have to fear death. They no longer have to fear the power of Satan as the agent of death. Because Jesus, through his death, as you can see very clearly in 1415, has freed those all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, the, the gospel that's being preached here is not the prosperity gospel, which says, oh, you will never suffer, you will never have any hardship, you will never have any difficulty. You know, he doesn't say to the Jewish Christians, don't worry, they will never catch you, you will, you will live forever and be really rich. No, he says, the writer says, that actually the gospel is about the promise of eternal life the promise of the conquering of death. And that's what is found in Jesus Christ. He is the liberator from the slavery of death. Now, I guess for us as we sit here 
we live in Singapore, we don't, we don't understand the sort of fear that they would have faced. Okay, so I, I, I wrote this down from... Hey, no, I didn't write it down, sorry. Oh, yes, I did. Next slide. This guy, Tertullian, he was a, Jewish, uh, he was a Christian leader. I'm not sure whether he was martyred or not. But he lived some time after this. And he wrote, If the river Tiber reaches the walls, uh, it's the Christian's fault. If the river Tiber does not rise to the fields, it's the Christian's fault. If the sky does not move, or the earth does, does it's the Christian's fault. If there's a famine or if there's a plague, it's the Christian's fault. The cry is at once, the Christian's to the lion. Right, so, if you live in this environment where the whole society is against you, Right, then there's great fear, isn't it? Great, powerful motivation to give up Jesus. But how wrong that would be. Because Jesus actually liberates you from the fear of death because he's conquered death. And in Jesus, you will never die again. So why? Why should we give up on Jesus even in the face of death and persecution? We shouldn't. John Calvin wrote, If any man cannot set his mind at rest, by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not gone far enough in his faith in Christ. Right? That's very profound, isn't it? If any man cannot set his mind at rest by disregarding death, that man should know that he has not gone far enough in his faith in Christ. You see, it's true. If you really know Jesus, if you know what he has done for you on the cross, if you know his resurrection, his exaltation, then you know that he has conquered death for you. And if you have faith in Jesus, you will live forever in heaven with God. Okay, the last section, right, in verse 16 onwards, talks about Jesus uh, and again, why they are not to move on from Jesus. So in verse 16 it says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts in Jesus whom you, we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. And we are His house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now here, if you look at this passage, it says that Jesus is not just the pioneer of our glory. He's not just the liberator from the slavery to death. But He's also the builder of God's house. Now, when we think of house, we, we, can, we, can, we can use house to explain uh, a building like this, bricks and mortar, right? This is a dwelling in terms of a house. That's what the house means. I live in a house. 
But the word house here doesn't mean uh, a physical building, uh, bricks and mortar, right, a flat. The word house here literally means people, family, community. So what it's saying here is Jesus builds a community of God's people. He builds a family of God. He builds a people of God. And how does he do that? He does it in verse 17, isn't it? Because he is our high priest, fully flesh and blood, who has died to make atonement for our sins. Now you might sort of ask yourself, why does the writer of the book of Hebrews spend so much time talking about all these Old Testament uh, you know, symbols, all, the, all these Old Testament powerful imagery? Uh, I think part of the reason is he's look, the, the, the Jewish Christians were looking back to the glory days, the good old days, and they attempted to go back. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says, no, these things are shadows. You must look instead to the reality of the future, which is found in Jesus Christ. Now, I think we, we sort of need again to understand the social, political situation happening there. Okay, by 60 AD, right, the Jewish ethnic religion had sort of fully rejected Christianity. So, so if you actually look at the book Acts, initially the church used to come under the protection of Judaism. Right? They were sort of seen as a Jewish sect. And in the Roman society, uh, Judaism was given protection. If you were a Jew and, and you were following Judaism, you didn't have to worship the emperor because they recognized you as your local religion. But by 60 AD, Christianity had gone beyond uh, the walls of Judaism and it spread all to many Gentiles, right? And uh, the Romans, the Roman uh, emperors and authorities began to say that, okay, Christians are no longer under the protection of Judaism, but rather they are an illegal religion of their own. And they had no protection. They had to worship the emperor or they would die. So you can sort of imagine, if you're a Jewish Christian, you go to Jewish New Year instead of Chinese New Year or whatever, and you meet your friends, and while you're having, or they kind of bakwa, while you're having, a, yeah, there's something else, hummus or something, I don't know. But you're mixing around with your Jewish friends, right? And they're saying to you, hey, look, why do you want to, to be exposed to all this persecution? Why do you come back to Judaism? Come back to being a Jew, come back to the temple, come back to Moses, come back to the priest, come back to the sacrificial system. Why do you want to follow this dead guy who was crucified on the cross? Now, I don't know about you, if I was a Jewish Christian, that would be very tempting. Right? Because as a Jew, I have great pride in Moses, I have great pride in the temple, I have great pride in the priests. At the same time, I'm facing all this persecution outside of Judaism, why don't I come back to being a Jew? But the writer of the Hebrews says, look, why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to all these things? Because they are not going to save you. You are not going to be part of the kingdom of God if you follow these old practices. Now, I think we don't realize just how influential Moses was a figure if you're a Jewish person. Right? It's like, I guess I can't uh, find, I mean, it's like Lee Kuan Yew to Singaporeans or something, right? But a hundred times greater because uh, the, the, the Jews were still following the law and the law was given by Moses. Okay, so to give you an idea of just how great Moses was, look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, okay? Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land, 
For no one has ever shown the mighty power performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. See, Moses was the big, the big guy for the Jews. He was like incomparable. Right? He was like, if there was one person who was untouchable for them in terms of the history, it was Moses. He was not just a prophet. He was the one who led them out of slavery in Egypt and he was the one whom God did all those powerful miracles through. But yet, look at the way the writer of Hebrews talks about Moses. He says that, yeah, okay, Moses was a great guy, but Moses was just a faithful servant, a servant in God's house. Look at what it says there in verse um, verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. Bearing witness to what God would have, sorry to what would be spoken by God in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. See, it's a very powerful contrast between Moses and Jesus. Moses, as great as he was, was only a servant, but Jesus was the son. Moses served in God's house, within the house that God made. But Jesus serves over God's house and he builds that house. See, can Moses take away sins? No, Moses can't take away sins. Could Moses make atonement for sins? No, he couldn't. Could Moses bring God's people into God's kingdom? No, he couldn't. Only Jesus could. And the point over and over again that this passage makes is the inferiority of Moses compared to Jesus. And the whole point was, why go back? Why go back to Moses when someone so much greater than Moses is here? So now, the application comes in chapter 3, isn't it? And basically, the main two applications come in verse 1 and in verse 6. And they're both linked together, right? Because they're all part of the argument that comes through. So in verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling... Fix your thoughts on Jesus whom we acknowledge as our Apostle and High Priest. Now notice how he calls them in verse 1. Holy brothers and sisters. They are only holy because Jesus has made atonement for their sins. That's what makes them holy. They are only brothers and sisters because Jesus has built them into a house of God. And he says, because you're holy, because you're brothers and sisters who share this heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Don't fix your thoughts on Moses. Don't fix your thoughts on the temple or the priest. Don't fix your thoughts on the Roman authorities who are trying to kill you. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Now, I know for us, we don't share the immediate fear that the Jewish Christians did of persecution. So maybe we're not distracted that way, right? But what do we fix our thoughts on? I remember when we did the Bible study this week, it was really helpful for me to talk to people and see how there's so many things that we fix our thoughts on, but they're not on Jesus Christ. We fix our thoughts on a thousand and one things which are irrelevant to our eternal life, to our reigning of glory and honour, being part of God's house. But we are fixing our thoughts on those things instead. And by fixing our thoughts on those things, we actually 
lose our unity and solidarity and faith in Jesus Christ. Does that ever happen to you or is that happening to you now? Have you fixed your thoughts maybe on your career or your work or your relationships or your hobbies so much so that you're no longer looking at Jesus anymore and you're losing the liberator, the pioneer of your faith, the one who builds God's house. Because that was a very real danger for, for them and it's a very real danger for us. Maybe not from persecution, but from the attractions of things in this world. Because in verse 6, he provides a conditional statement, right? And this conditional statement so shows us that there is a risk involved if we do not fix our thoughts properly. In verse 6 he says, But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if, if, right, there's a big condition there, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, very interesting way that the book of write, the, the writer of the Hebrews writes. He doesn't write and say, hold firmly to Jesus Christ. But he says, hold firmly to your confidence, your assurance, your, your, your boneless in what Jesus has done for you. Are you holding on to Jesus Christ and the confidence to know that he has died for you, he has saved you and that you lack nothing, absolutely nothing in this life? Do you have that confidence that no matter what happens, right, that you just have to hold on to Jesus and not be distracted by so many things around us? Do you hold firmly to the hope of eternal life or is your hope found somewhere else? Are you holding on to the hope of the glory of the future or do you have your hope in this world instead? See, I said in the beginning today uh, about the brain games, right? The book about, uh, the, the, the program about how we live in a world where there's so many choices in front of us. Not just ice cream, right? But there's choices for everything. And we're not like Jewish Christians. I don't think we face persecution in Singapore to any degree. To even minutely understand the sort of fear that they face. But it's so easy for us to, in the same way as them, second-guess our Christian faith, to doubt Jesus, to fix our thoughts on other things and be distracted and to hold on to other things and to lose our confidence and our hope in the future. See, the problem is, I think, in the world that we live in, because of the multitude of choices we have before us, we are perpetually dissatisfied. I guess if I gave you if you went to an ice cream shop and I just gave you two flavors, vanilla, chocolate, it's very easy, isn't it? You just choose one and then you know you're happy, right? But if I give you 20 flavors, 25 flavors, you always think maybe there's another flavor out there that I haven't tried, which is even better than the one I had. I remember this uh, writer called Os Guinness. He, uh, he comments about the world that we live in. Choice has become a value in itself, even a priority. To be modern is to be addicted to choice and change. Change becomes the very essence of life. And I think that's true, isn't it? In, in the sense that we live in a world of a multitude of ch choices 
and changes. We change everything around us in order to, to find the maximum, most optimal life that we want to live. But the problem is that it makes us distracted from Jesus. We can change everything around us, but it can never make us change our first priority, our first dream, our first hope, our first energy found in Jesus. I wonder whether in your life you have lost that place for Jesus in your life and replaced it with something else. Uh, some, something else which in the end will not give you glory and honour for eternity, will not liberate you from death and will not make you part of God's house. I know that uh, in the Bible study, someone said something really profound and I thought I asked their permission to write it down. I thought it was really helpful. He said, or this person said, when you, when you live in this world, there's so many attractions, right? so many things that want your attention instead of Jesus. And when she was growing as a Christian, the Bible study leader said to her or something, you need to glance at the world but gaze at Jesus. I thought, wow, that's really quite profound, right? So I wrote it down. I said, okay, I must use it the sermon on Sunday. But that's really true, isn't it? Because in the world, there's so many things which want to capture our attention and demand that we just follow it and we put Jesus to the side. But instead, we should glance at these things, glance at the world and gaze only on Jesus. Because if you truly agree with those three things, that He is the pioneer, He's our author of salvation, and the future of glory and honour, if He liberates us from death, if He builds God's house, if you agree that Jesus does those three things for you, then you cannot afford to put Jesus by the wayside. You must always fix your thoughts on Him and hold on to Him and Him alone. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your word in the book of Hebrews. We thank you, God, that we are not faced with the persecution, the fear of someone knocking at the door and arresting us, and bringing us to be executed. We thank you that we live in Singapore where uh, there is respect for our faith and our walk in Christ. But at the same time, we recognize that we too face a different danger, a danger by which we may second-guess we may doubt our faith in Jesus and then our actions to drift far away from Him. Not because of persecution, but because of the many attractions that there are in this life and in this world. Dear Father, we want to lay every one of these temptations down before you today. We confess that we may have over-prioritized our hobbies, our relationships, our work, our interests, and taken our eyes off what is really important your Son, Jesus, who came and died and demands our full attention. We pray for each and every one of us that we will only glance at the world but gaze always on Jesus. Because in Jesus we have an eternity where we will rule the world, where we will receive glory and honour, where we will never die and never have to fear death, and where we will always be part of your house. And we pray that we will always see the reality and the truth of that and to never 
let go of that because we need to always hold on to Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.